Good evening, church. This is the fourth episode in our study of Romans chapters 9 to 11, a section of Scripture that accounts for nearly one-fifth of this most important letter, a section of Scripture that I fear many Christians have never really studied because it introduces some matters that are difficult for us to understand. Not because they're complicated, but because they're difficult for us as people to accept. Matters that go against our sense of what is right and fair and really challenge our view about God. Yet very often the truths we as humans find the most difficult to accept are the most vital. And I'm sure Paul would not have devoted such a large portion of his letter to the Romans to this matter unless he believed it was important for God's saints to understand. And so as much as these chapters seem to be a bit confusing at times and contain truths about God that are difficult to accept, it is vital that we understand them and accept them as they've been handed down to us by the Apostle Paul. What I would like to do right now is read from verses 1 to 24 of this chapter, Romans chapter 9. This is one thing that we haven't done in any of the previous episodes, and it is something that we do need to do because it allows us to hear the words of Paul just as he wrote them. So let's have a look at this passage, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 24. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, 
to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. I want to remind you that Paul did not write Romans with chapters and verses. Chapter 9 follows straight on from what Paul was saying in chapter 8. And so we mustn't make the mistake of studying chapter 9 in a way that is divorced from chapter 8. So let me remind you briefly of what Paul wrote towards the end of chapter 8. It was in the last 10 or so verses of chapter 8 that Paul introduced the idea of God having an elect. In fact, he used the phrase God's elect in verse 33. So clearly he was referring to a group of people with a special relationship to God in chapter 8. In fact, he describes the wonderful position of this group or that this group has with God in chapter 8. I don't have the time to go through all the privileges that this group enjoys that Paul put down in chapter 8, but let me just remind you of a few of them. Number one, the Holy Spirit intercedes for them. Number two, God's work, God works all things for their good. Number three, they were predestined to be conformed to the likeness of God's Son. Number four, they have absolute certainty of being glorified because God is for them and it is He who called them and justified them. Number five, Jesus Christ who died for them is also interceding for them at the right hand of God. Number six, nothing in all of creation can separate them from God's love. I'm sure you remember these things from our study, our, uh, the time that we spent in Romans chapter 8. Now imagine Paul. He finishes chapter 8 having so passionately described this incredible position that God's elect has with God. And then he remembers the way the Israelites have rejected the gospel and Christ. And his heart is broken for them. And he laments deeply over them. And he asks the burning question, why have they not believed? After all, are they not God's chosen people? Are they not his elect? Are they not his saints? Have they not been called according to his purpose? Are the promises and covenants and the temple worship and the law not theirs? Are they not the children of Abraham? Is not the Christ in terms of his flesh one of them? Has God's word failed? Has his elect nation been lost? Has his plan for them failed? Not at all. As he declared in verse 6 of this chapter that we've just read, not all Israel are Israel. In other words, not everyone who is a part of the nation of Israel and an Israelite by birth is part of God's holy chosen people, God's elect. Paul says, neither are they children of God just because they are Abraham's descendants. Remember this phrase, children of God, also goes back to chapter 8. It goes back to chapter 8 and verse 16. 
That's where Paul first introduces this idea of being children of God in this letter to the Romans. He says there in verse 16, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You see, Abraham had more than one son and they were all circumcised and should therefore all have been heirs of the covenant. But God told him, it's through Isaac that your seed will be counted. So that excludes Ishmael and all of Abraham's other sons. None of them were descended from Isaac. And so if it was through Isaac that Abraham's seed was to be counted, then Ishmael and all of other Abraham's sons were not a part of what God considered to be Abraham's descendants. But what about Esau? Why was Esau not chosen? Why does the scripture tell us that God hated Esau? I mean, after all, Esau was Isaac's son, just as Jacob was. He descended from Isaac. Didn't God say that it would be through Isaac that Abraham's seed would be counted? That's exactly what God said. So why was Esau hated by God? To answer that, we need to ask a question. Who was God referring to when he told Abraham, it is through Isaac that your seed will be counted? He was referring to Christ. You see, Isaac is a type of Christ. He figuratively represents Christ. In telling Abraham that it is in Isaac that his seed would be counted, God was saying that it is in Christ that his seed would be counted. It's not the natural children of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob that are God's children. It is the supernaturally born children, the children born of God, just as Isaac was, the children of promise, the children born of the Spirit. It's those who are in Christ. You see, in inspiring the Apostle Paul to write what he did in the passage we just read, God wanted to make clear that being part of his people, his elect, and therefore an heir of his covenants and promises is not based on anything human. And this is the point that we've been laboring in the past three episodes. It's not based on human ancestry or nationality. In other words, on who we are. It's not based on a person's works, whether good or bad. In other words, what we do. And it's not based on a person's desire or effort. In other words, what we want or what we seek. Rather, it is based solely on God's compassion and mercy, which is based solely on His sovereign choice and will, which is in keeping with His purpose. God has said, He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and compassion on whom He will have compassion. Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30, where he said, Those whom God foreknew, He predestined. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Who are those God foreknew? It is those whom He, before the foundation of the world, chose to have mercy on. Because He chose to have mercy on them, He predestined them to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, and He called them. This calling of those that God foreknew results in them being justified and ultimately glorified. 
It results in them being transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. It causes them to be born again, to become children of God, new creatures in Christ. This call of God is a merciful and miraculous work of God that is undeserved, unearned in its entirety. And it has nothing to do with the person, but all to do with God. It's based on God's choice and on God's mercy. It is this call of God that enables someone to believe the gospel. Apart from the call of God, the gospel doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense to those who are called of God. I want to just read to you what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. Let's just read it quickly. Paul wrote there, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice the phrase, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. You see, Paul distinguishes them from the other Jews and the other Greeks to whom the message of Christ is a stumbling block and mere folly. He says that those who are called see in Christ what the rest of humanity does not see. To them, he is the power and wisdom of God. Whereas to the rest of humanity, whether Jew or Greek, he is a stumbling block and folly. What makes the difference? It is the fact that they have been called by God. You see, what I'm trying to show you here is this. It is the merciful act of God in calling the people he has chosen, which results in them believing the gospel and therefore being saved. God does not choose those who choose to believe. No people believe because God chose to have mercy on them and therefore called them. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 to 31. Let's just read it. He said, and because of him, that's God, you are in Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say you're in Christ Jesus because you have believed in him. He says it is because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God has set up salvation in a way that excludes every human boast. No one is going to be able to stand before God and boast about anything they have done. We love Him because He first loved us. We chose Him because He first chose us. As people, we struggle with this fact. We struggle with the thought that salvation does not depend on us, but on God Himself. But when you think about it, this is so easy to see. Man is God's idea. He created us. We did not create ourselves. We're all sinners worthy of eternal death, but God chose to save some of us. Salvation was God's idea, not ours. He sent His Son to die for the sins of those who believe in Him. That was God's idea, not ours. 
It is He who calls those whom He has chosen so that they might believe in Him and therefore be saved. Once again, that was His idea and not ours. You see, it all originates with God and not with us. It's all His idea and it is all by grace. But we're offended by the notion that God would only choose to save some. Paul knew this would be the case and he preempted it. We find it unfair, in other words, unjust, that God would only show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. But is it unjust? Certainly it's not. We need to understand something about God. You see, God is always just. In fact, Scripture tells us that justice is the very foundation of his throne. But he's not always merciful. If he was for one moment to be unjust, God's throne would crumble. But he does not have to show mercy for his throne to stand. And he does not have to show mercy to be just. He is free to show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. And as we can see from his very own words in verse 15, he does not show mercy to everyone. He isn't obligated to do so, and no one can tell him whom he must show mercy to. If God is forced to show mercy, if he's obliged to do so, it is no longer mercy, because the very meaning of the word mercy excludes the idea of obligation. In fact, God would be entirely just to bring wrath upon all men, because that's what we all deserve. No one deserves mercy, and there is nothing we can do to earn it or to force God to show mercy to us. So when God brings His wrath upon someone, He is not being unjust. To the contrary, He is being entirely just. He is giving that person exactly what he deserves, nothing more and nothing less. Furthermore, the fact that God chooses to have mercy on some people doesn't make him unjust. It only makes him merciful. Why? Because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for those who believe in him. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, the death of Christ for the sins of those who have faith in Christ enables God to justly show mercy to them and justify them. I hope this is becoming a bit easier for you to understand and accept. Paul goes even further in this passage. He shows us that it is not, not only does God show mercy to whom he wills to show mercy, but he also hardens whom he wills to harden. Hardening is the opposite of showing mercy. When God shows mercy, he intervenes in a person's life to turn the heart of that person towards himself as he did in the case of Jacob. As we've seen, Scripture refers to this act of mercy as God calling someone. When God hardens someone, He does the exact opposite. He sends influencing forces upon the person so that their hearts remain turned away from Him. And this is what He did to Pharaoh. In Scripture, we see Him use false prophets and false teachers to harden people. In doing so, He allows them to continue in their evil ways unhindered. We see this in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that God gave them over to the uncleanness in their hearts, to perversion, to a depraved mind. He gave them over to these things that were already present in them. And in doing so, their hearts became hardened. 
Hardening is a form of judgment and wrath. The fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart was an act of judgment. More than that, we see that God will harden people's hearts so he can demonstrate his power and wrath. This is exactly what he did with Pharaoh. Why does he do this? He does it for the sake of his elect. He brings his wrath upon one sinner so that he can make himself known and show his mercy to other sinners whom he has chosen to show it to. This is astounding in my mind to think about. But listen to what God says to his elect through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43 and verse 4. He says this, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Who is he talking to here? He's talking to his elect. He says that he will give other people in exchange for them. Isn't this exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 9? Look at verses 22 to 24 again. This is what we read there. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You see, God gives the life of one sinner for the lives of his elect. Why? So they might know his wrath and power and the riches of his glory. If God never judged anyone, if he had mercy on everyone, we would never have known his wrath and power. We would never be able to know the riches of his glory. We would never understand the amazing grace he has given to us. And we would not know God in the measure he wants us to know him. Think of how this has worked. God judged the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that God did it not just because of their wickedness, not just because they deserved it, but also so God's elect might learn and not make the same mistake they did. You see, God's holiness, justice, and righteousness is just as much a part of His nature as His love is. God is love, but He's not just love. He is also holy, just, and righteous. He is also a consuming fire. If all God revealed was His mercy and love, no one would know God as He really is. There would be a whole side of who He is that would be missing in our knowledge. How does God reveal Himself? He does it through His actions. He's revealed His divine power and His eternal nature in what He's created. He reveals His love and mercy by doing what is loving and merciful. And He reveals His holiness and justice and righteousness by doing what is just, holy, and righteous. He reveals His wrath by consuming His enemies. People will accuse God of being unfair for judging people whom He has hardened. And Paul also preempted this. They will say, how can God judge someone whom He's preventing from repenting or not enabling to repent? Was God unjust? 
in doing so in the case of Pharaoh? Absolutely not. Pharaoh had already hardened his heart on numerous occasions. Did he not deserve for God to destroy him? Was God's hardening of his heart unjust? You see, we need to be careful of accusing God of wrongdoing. We need to be careful of opposing his sovereign right to deal with his creatures as he sees fit. As Paul says here, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Notice the distinction Paul places here. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, to accuse him of wrongdoing. We need to remember who we are and who God is. The problem with us as people is that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and we think lowlier of God than we ought. We elevate ourselves and we bring God down. We have the audacity to think that we are better than Him. We have the audacity to think that we are more righteous than He is. Do you know this is the folly of man's pride and arrogance? Look at what Paul wrote in verse 20. He said, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 16. This is what we read there. You turn things upside down. Talking here to humanity in general. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding? Do you know that God has pronounced a woe over anyone who does this? Let's have a look at Isaiah 45 and verse 9. It says there, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? You see, it's God who made everyone. Does he not have the right to choose for what purpose he is making them? As Paul said here in verse 21, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Of course he does. No one can accuse God of wrongdoing when he does so. Is humanity not his idea? Are we not the work of his hands? Why did he create us? Was it not for his own purposes? You see, Paul is teaching the reality of God's sovereignty over humanity in this passage. That's why we struggle with it. A sovereignty that is wholly just and yet also merciful, but not to all, only to those whom he chooses to be merciful to. And who are these people? Well, Paul calls them by, by various titles in this letter, his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 8 verse 27, he calls them the saints. In chapter 8 and verse 28, he refers to them as those whom he called according to his purpose. In Romans 8.29, he calls or refers to them as those whom he foreknew. In Romans 8.33, as God's elect. In Romans 9 verse 6, as Israel. In Romans 9.7, as the children of Abraham. In chapter 9 verse 8, as the children of God and the children of promise. In chapter 9, verse 21, as vessels prepared for honorable use. And in chapter 9, verse 23, 
as vessels of mercy whom he called. And as he says in verse 24, this group does not consist of Jews only, there are also Gentiles in it. Instead of being offended by the fact that God is not going to save everyone, that not everyone's going to be shown mercy, we should be amazed that anyone is going to be saved at all. Instead of accusing God of doing wrong, we should be praising Him for the fact that He's chosen to save anyone. Think of the lengths that He's gone to so that He could do so. Think of what it cost Him to save those He has chosen to save. It cost Him His Son. And this is what we should be amazed by. This is what we will be praising God for throughout eternity. Does this mean that we, like Paul, don't feel great grief over those we know and love who do not believe? Does this mean that we should not desire to see them come to faith and do all that we can to bring them to faith? Does it mean that they will never come to faith and be saved? Not at all. Just because someone doesn't believe today does not mean that he may not do so tomorrow and that he's not a part of God's people, God's elect. So let us not think that these truths mean that we should not be praying for the unbelieving loved ones our hearts are so burdened for and looking for every opportunity to speak to them about the state of their souls. Some people erroneously have come to this conclusion after hearing about the matters we've been discussing today. Let us not be like them. I'm going to leave it there for today. I'm sure that some of the statements I've made today about God will give you all something to discuss and contemplate together. And there's still over two chapters in this section to go through. It's going to take us some time, but at the end of it, there's no doubt that we are all going to be far richer in our understanding of God and His ways, of His greatness, of His sovereignty, and I have no doubt that our hearts will be filled with praise for Him. And so Ian and I are really looking forward to leading you through the remainder of these uh, three chapters in the months that lie ahead. I pray that God has just helped to make a little bit more clear what we've been discussing over the past three episodes. And uh, we will be continuing in two weeks time again. And uh, until then, I just pray that God will continue to give you understanding of these matters. God bless you.